0: Nehemiah. We'll begin at the last part of chapter 7. This is God's holy word. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Badana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbathai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozabed, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. It was about 12 or 13 years before I was ordained, before I really had any serious thought about the ministry, that I attended a Bible conference in Toronto with my older brother. And the speaker was a Scottish man named Eric Alexander. He was a minister in the Church of Scotland for 50 years. His last charge was St. George's Tron in downtown Glasgow. I think for some years he was Sinclair Ferguson's pastor at that church. And at that Bible conference for the session that I sat in on, the text that Eric Alexander spoke from was Nehemiah chapter 8. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was captivated. That exposition of Nehemiah 8 left an indelible impression on my soul with regard to the ministry of the word in the church of Christ. What a blessing to have the ministry of the word of God in your life. We take some of the best things in life so easily for granted. We sit under the ministry of the word of the living God. That was 12 or 13 years ago. Here we are this afternoon in our sermon series through Ezra and Nehemiah at this same chapter. And again, I see the Lord's providential timing on display. This, as we mentioned this morning, is the first Lord's Day of a new year, 2022. Verse 2 of Nehemiah chapter 8 gives a time reference as well. It was the first day of the seventh month. In the Jewish calendar, that's the Jewish month Tishri. The rabbis believe that God created the world in the first week of the month of Tishri, our September or October. And so the first day of this month on the Jewish calendar is considered to be the beginning of the civil year. If you read Exodus chapter 12, you'll see that the first month religiously was Nisan, the month of Passover, our March-April. But Jews to this day celebrate the first day of the seventh month as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, the Jewish New Year. And so Nehemiah chapter 8 begins with the new year as we... Think about it in our worship today as well. It was known as the Feast of Trumpets, Leviticus 23, 24. Speak to the children of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial blowing of the trumpets, a holy convocation, a holy coming together. It was a special Sabbath. What the Sabbath day was to the week Tishri, the seventh month, was to the year. It was sort of then a double Sabbath. Verse 9, this day is sacred to the Lord. The beginning of the year began with a sacred day set apart for the Lord as a token that all of our days should be lived for him. The more immediate context, of course, here, The people had returned from exile in Babylon. It was a new beginning, a time of reconstruction and rebuilding. Ezra and Nehemiah, these books tell us about that return and rebuilding first of the temple, then of the walls, the rebuilding of the nation. That rebuilding in the fifth and sixth centuries was in large part a rebuilding of wood and stone, but the people needed to be rebuilt As well, as do we in this life, we are a people under construction. We are being changed. We're justified in God's sight, all for the righteousness of Christ received by faith alone. But personally, we're under construction until glory. Our lives as individuals are being built up and together as the people of God, we are being built together into a holy house, a spiritual temple, living stones, added, built up as the church grows. Well, on this New Year's Day celebration in Nehemiah chapter 8, what was the focus? That's a good question for each of us on the verge of a new year again as we're now our second day into 2022. 2022. Do you have a focus this year, a priority, a goal? I may have lots of goals and priorities in different ways. Uh, But listen to what we read in in so many of these verses here in Nehemiah chapter 1. Verse 1, bring out the book. They brought the law. Verse 5, he opened the book. Verse 8, he read from the book. What's repeated over and over and over again, boys and girls? It's the book. It's the book. And you know what that book is. It's God's word. It's God's written word. That was the focus on this New Year's Day celebration in Nehemiah chapter 8. And whatever other goals you may have, whatever other priorities you may have into this coming year, is the book a priority for you? Is the law of God a focus in your life? Will it be in this coming year? I want to think from Nehemiah chapter 8 and just the first 12 verses this afternoon. Four things we see here related to the Word of God on this New Year's Day celebration. First, we see the Word of God requested. And then we see the Word of God very clearly revered. And then, helpfully, the Word of God explained. And then throughout this chapter, and particularly uh, in those last verses up until verse 12 that we read, the Word of God experienced. So the word of God requested, revered, explained, and experienced. Well, first, the word of God requested. Verse 1 tells us that the people had gathered together. It was a day of holy convocation. That word means to be called together, and there they were. And it was a great unified gathering. How beautiful that is when we read, and it's read in several places throughout Scripture, that they assembled as one man. They were unified in their thinking and in their desires. They had one heart, one desire. That's an attribute of the church that is so often called for and prayed for in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, in the letters Make my joy complete, said Paul in Philippians 2.2, by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. And here they are united, especially in a request. Bring out the book. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. There's a lot there about the divine origin of scripture that we could take note of, but it's the request that we want to note. This bringing out of the book was the result of the request of the people. It was a grassroots request. It wasn't something that was being forced on them. Now you sit there and this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to be done. It was their request. This wasn't a top-down initiative. The people gathered and they told Ezra. They asked of Ezra bring us the book. This was a request by the people, for the people. Men, women, children, I think the inference is that they're children, all who could understand, who had reached a level of understanding, bring us the book. All who could understand, and just a note on that, if we think, well, how old were they? Don't don't our children surprise us so often with how young they can be and how much they can tune in to what's happening under the ministry of the Word of God? I wish I had kept all the instances over 24 years of the things that children write down on little scraps of paper. Bring them. Questions that little children have as they've been listening to the word of God so young, and yet they're thinking, they're hearing, they're listening, they're thinking. Younger than we often realize. Matthew Henry said, little ones, as they come to the exercise of reason, must be trained up in the exercises of religion. They were under the word of God. They requested it. This was what was requested. Bring us the book. Do you want the word? I know you do. I know you do. What a blessing that this congregation has been for so many years. You've said it in lots of ways. By your presence, by your careful listening, by your comments to me. I know it's true. You're people who say, Pastor, bring us the book. Bring us the book. You want the book? Would you miss it? Not just from the pulpit. Would you miss it in your lives? If I snuck into your house... Or someone snuck into your house this afternoon, a thief, boys and girls. You're here, and he's come into your house this afternoon. He's somehow gotten in. You left the door unlocked. But he's not an ordinary thief. He's come for only one thing. It's not your computer. It's not your video games. He's stealing your Bible. He's stealing your Bible at home. How long would it take before you missed it? Would you miss the Word of God in your life? Do you want the book? The people in Nehemiah's day said, Bring us the book. It's an important thing to think about individually, but also as congregations. Sometimes apostasy comes from the top. Seminaries become liberal. Stop teaching the word of God purely. And they produce liberal ministers. And those liberal ministers go back to their congregations and lead them into apostasy. That happens. I know it does. I've seen it. But it can come the other way too. It can come the other way too. Paul warns Timothy about people who will surround themselves with teachers to say to them what their itching ears want to hear. And it will be from a people that, for whatever reasons, don't really want the book anymore in church, in worship. They want something else. It may still come sort of connected to the book, but it's not the book. It's not the word. My prayer for you this year is that you will be a we-want-the-book people, like the people in Nehemiah chapter 8. Sacrifices were held at the temple, but this was at the water gate. This was a time, as one writer said, of praying, praising, and preaching. Preaching. It was a precursor, in a way, of what the synagogue would be like when the Jews worshipped away from the temple, and then after the temple was destroyed. And in the New Testament, Christian churches are called synagogues as well. This became the pattern for New Testament worship, praying, praising, preaching. And it was thoroughly word-centered. Bring us the book. Bring us the book. They requested the word because, secondly, it was obvious they revered the word. They revered the word. How is that seen? Seen in different ways. First, in terms of construction. Something was built for this occasion. Did you see that, boys and girls? Ezra the scribe, verse 4, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. What would we call it? A pulpit. This is, this is not quite a, a pulpit in the traditional sense, but it serves the purpose. But this was a pulpit. Sometimes that's sort of out of fashion in churches today, to have a pulpit It seems somehow too authoritarian, too condescending perhaps to people. But a pulpit doesn't elevate a man. It elevates the word. It elevates the word. that The word is above us. Literally, the Hebrew says a tower, migdal. Remember a couple of weeks ago, the shepherds, The gospel, the angels came uh, to the tower of the flock, Micah chapter 4. Well, here is a tower of the flock. It's the pulpit. It's this platform, a tower uh, to look out over the sheep, over the flock as God protects and feeds his people with his word. The very building of a pulpit shows the reverence for the word of God. All could see, all could hear. No one was to be excluded. The physical architecture reflected a spiritual reverence and priority. And it happens in churches today too. You can walk into some churches and get a sense of the priority. Where's the pulpit? Well, it's over there. Or we got rid of that. It's in the back room somewhere. Or in some places of worship, there's still an altar, and they call it an altar in the middle. Pulpit is in the middle. A pulpit is at the center. The focus of the worship and of the worshiper. The existence of the pulpit showed their reverence. Their posture, their physical posture, showed their reverence. They stood the reading of God's word, like we did this afternoon. I know we don't usually do that, but I couldn't not do it this afternoon. But we read they also kneeled. They also bowed down. Matthew Henry said, standing at the hearing of the word of God is a token of reverence, and of readiness to obey what is commanded. We're ready to go. There are other postures, of course, mentioned. Here, hands lifted up, faces bowed down to the ground. Should we make a law of this? No. Uh, are they what must be always done? No. I think it's like prayer and different postures in prayer. Uh, but I think there are sometimes, whether you do it or not, where the spirit so moves that these things are done uh, almost without thinking much about it. I've been in worship services where, for for singing, even as sometimes a psalm is called for, and people start singing, they just start standing up during it. What's most important, of course, is the posture of your heart, whatever the posture of your body. Because you can be standing to hear the Bible read and your heart can still be laying down half asleep. Whatever our body posture, we should strive to stand before God and at the same time to be in our faces before God in reverence. Reverence here is also shown in the duration of the ministry of the word. From dawn until noon, in their reckoning, that's probably six hours. Six hours. We are to preach. The Westminster Directory for Worship reminds us to the capacity of our hearers. And there's a wisdom in that. But what a great reverence was displayed in this six hour ministry of the word. There are lots of places in the world where they can't believe we have one hour services. One hour. Don't you feel ripped off, they say, very colloquially? Six hours. Reverence, reverence, reverence. Do you revere the word of God? God takes delight in those who tremble at his word. Then we see, and we need to move on, But I hope you go back to Nehemiah 8 and and think through these things as well in your own life. But we see the word explained. This is a great highlight of this chapter. It's not just ritualistic reading. It's not like the church in the Middle Ages, for instance, where uh, Latin became the language of Scripture and the language of worship. And most people, if not always all people, didn't understand Latin. And it just went on. When Martin Luther went to Rome in the early 1500s, he found that many of the priests there didn't understand Latin. They had just memorized the sounds, the words. No understanding. No understanding. But here... The word was explained. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. What is this? This is the reading of the word of God and expository preaching. That's what we mean. You hear that sometimes. That's what we mean, expository preaching. We exposit the word of God. We take the word of God and bring out its meaning. We don't bring our meaning into it. We bring out the meaning of the Word of God so that people can understand what is being read. Expository ministry of the Word so that people understand what is being read. We need to commit ourselves to that both as preachers and hearers to the understanding of the Word of God to be committed to the reading of the word of God with a desire that we would all grow in understanding, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's understanding that we have to come to. Acts chapter 8, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. It's the expository meaning of the word of God. And that is so crucial for for the pulpit ministry of the word in churches. But it may be exercised as well, personally and privately, not as the authoritative preaching of the word of God in worship by called, ordained ministers of the word, But haven't you ever come alongside someone? Maybe it's a new believer. Maybe it's an unbeliever still. And you open the word, and they have no idea. It's blah, 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 blah to them. And then you begin to talk to them, and you explain it. And by God's grace, they go, ah. Now, sometimes that's a carnal ah. They understand, and they turn away. But by God's grace, there's a gospel, ah, understanding that flows from a new heart that leads to faith and repentance and new obedience from understanding the word of God. What does it say? What does it mean? And then how does it apply to me? The understanding of the word of God. Preaching is more than teaching. But it should not be less than teaching. There should be an understanding of the word of God that's present. I had two wonderful encounters this past week. In this regard, two people, and they said in different ways, I want to understand. For one individual, it was, I know, I know what I believe, but I need to know more why I believe it. It's maybe something that I've been taught. Just because you taught it doesn't mean it's wrong. How many of you were raised in homes that weren't flat earth? Right? Is that wrong just because your parents didn't, you're not flat earthers, you believe the earth is a sphere, do you have to repudiate that just because you were taught it as a child? Of course not. But do you know why you believe what you believe? Do you understand? That's what we're being shown here. And then the other encounter was from a much, much, much younger person who in pencil on a little piece of paper, out of a notebook, wrote a note to me, and part of it said, I like when you preach to me, and that you take time to make me understand. How is the word of God to be read? Larger Catechism 157, the Holy Scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem. Of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God and that He only can enable us to understand them, with a desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them, with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, with meditation, application, self denial, and prayer. The word of God, requested, revered, explained, but then lastly, experienced. The word of God experienced. What happened under this ministry of the word on that New Year's celebration? Ezra opened the book, verse five, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord The great God and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What was the experience of the ministry of the word? It led to worship. Matthew Henry again said, we must adore God and address ourselves to him when we read and hear the word. Of God. This isn't just any book. It's the word of God. God is the author of this book. And because he's God, when we open this book, it must be with worship. It must be in the attitude of worship and promote worship in our lives. Ted Donnelly said, a sermon isn't a lecture. Bible reading is more than the transfer of information. As God addresses us with intense intimacy, not only our minds, but our emotions and wills are inevitably affected. And that's what we're seeing, this worshipful response to the word of God, as you're not just dealing with words on a page, but the God of heaven. And worship is seen in Nehemiah chapter 8 in, along two lines. Worship in two dimensions. The first is the conviction of sin. Verse 9, the latter part of verse 9, all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. As the Levites expounded the word, made its meaning clear, the people began to weep. They began to mourn a great conviction of sin swept over the congregation. The holiness of God on the one hand and the sinfulness of the people on the other hand came together and it was too clear to be ignored. And they wept. And this is a legitimate part of Christian experience. Psalm 119, 136, we sang it, rivers, of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. People don't, and I don't. We don't. And so Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. When Nehemiah encouraged the people, even commanded the people, do not mourn or weep or grieve, he was not saying that they were wrong to do it, that weeping was entirely inappropriate but that it must not be their final destination. Sorrow for sin is appropriate, but it is preparation for something. It is a precursor, by God's grace, to joy. The joy of forgiveness and peace with God. Those are the two lines of worship here. Weeping in conviction and the joy of forgiveness. This is worship in a minor and a major key. Conviction for sin and joy in forgiveness. You know, 10 days after this New Year's Day in the month of Tishri, the Jews celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the covering of sin by the blood of the sacrifice. Orthodox Jews to this day in the afternoon of their New Year's Day, assemble near rivers, streams, and oceans for what they call tashlik, which literally means the casting away. And they read Micah 7.19, he will again have compassion on us and he will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The casting away on the first day. And then 10 days later, the day of atonement. The sad thing is for these Jews today is that conviction of sin and confession of sin cannot take away sin. It's not just being sorry for sin that saves you from sin. Every person in hell is sorry in some sense for their sin. And now the temple is gone. They have no day of atonement sacrifice and they still try to hold on to the shadows when the reality has come. Christ, the great high priest, has entered the Holy of Holies with his own blood to atone for the sin of his people. Nehemiah could look forward to the Messiah, but even in that anticipating faith, he knew that by God's grace and mercy... Sorrow for sin must give way to joy. There is a sacrifice for sin. God will cast your sin into the depths of the sea. If you you confess, he is faithful and righteous to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so that mourning must give way to joy. Or we're really saying something against our Savior, I think, aren't we? That somehow my sin, well, it's just a little bit too sinful. I've known people like this, that their lives are marked by by a a morose, funereal kind of life. And it's, it's often cast as a great contrition. I'm so sinful. I like what Ian Hamilton says. You're much worse than you think you are. But... That kind of sorrow for sin that never, ever leads to joy is a slight against the Savior. My sin is too sinful. I couldn't be forgiven. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Don't denigrate the Savior by only ever living in your mourning for your sin. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listen to the words of the law. There is joy in the Lord. It is joy from the Lord. It is real joy and deep joy. It is not superficial joy that the world can give when grain and new wine abound, Psalm 4. It is not a blind joy that simply ignores sin or sorrow. It is Christian joy. It is gospel joy. It is joy from the Lord. It is joy that takes into account the deepest cause for sorrow, sin. But it is joy that looks away from our sin and looks to the Christ who died for sinners. Sorrow for sin and seriousness about the issues of life and death are right and legitimate aspects of Christian thinking and experience. But as Matthew Henry said, even sorrow for sin must not hinder our joy in the Lord, but rather lead us to it and prepare us for it. Even sorrow for sin must not grow so excessive as to hinder our joy in our God and our cheerfulness in his service. That needs to be pastorally applied. It needs to be applied by the Spirit of God because some of us don't sorrow enough. I don't want to just give blanket things. Some of you don't sorrow enough for your sin. But some of you aren't joyful enough either. So some of you need to to spend some time in the weeping. Weeping. but then we all need to spend time in the rejoicing, in the rejoicing. Clear conviction of sin, said Robert Murray McShane, is the only true origin of dependence on another's righteousness. And therefore, strange to say, conviction of sin is the origin of the Christian's peace and cheerfulness. The last word for the Christian because of Jesus is not sin or sorrow, but joy. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah goes beyond the joy of the forgiveness of God and says something of great practical benefit for the people of God. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I was going to go into it this afternoon. I'm going to stop there. We'll pick that up next time. The joy of the Lord is your strength. But beloved, here's another New Year's Day for us, 2022. Will it be a we want the book year for you? The book requested. The book revered. The book understood. The book experienced. May it be for God's glory and for our good. And all the people said.